morning, Doxa Church. You can go ahead and take a seat. Good morning. Uh, if we haven't met yet, my name is uh, Sam Roberts. Nice to meet you. Um, I am one of the guys on staff here at Doxa Church. Uh, the kind of main thing that I do on staff is um, I oversee local missions for us here at Doxa. In addition to that, I do um, kind of all of our graphic designs, visual arts stuff for Doxa. Uh, I'm the husband of my best friend, uh, Morgan Roberts, um, and my favorite color is orange. So that's about all that you need to know about me, and that's all that I have time to tell you about me, because we have a lot <laughs> to cover today. Um, we've got a huge text, um, kind of a heavy text, um, but I think it's going to be really, really good. Um, and I think on the other side, we're going to see God and his heart more clearly. So today, today's text is all about this, God's justice and righteousness for the poor. God's justice and righteousness for the poor. I'm going to have a verse come up from Psalm 146. It's going to kind of help frame our minds today of what's going on in today's text says, the Lord God upholds justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoner free. He loves the righteous, but he thwarts the ways of the wicked. And today, as we talk about the cities Sodom and Gomorrah, specifically Sodom, this is how the biblical authors remembered this story. You can sum it up in three sentences. This next verse from Ezekiel 16 says this. Now this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, plenty of food, comfortable security, but they did not support the poor and needy. They were haughty and they did a detestable act before me. So I removed them when I saw this. And so... When the first generation of Israelite Jews would have listened back, read back this story, they would have had the context of having heard and read the whole rest of the biblical story and what their minds would have been constantly going back to, constantly looking for, and holding onto is this. God's justice and righteousness. I'm not usually a prop guy, but Rudy Hartman gave me this idea and I thought it was a good idea. So if it doesn't work, it was Rudy's idea. But justice and righteousness. Because I think that this can be kind of like an, an inaccessible text for us, kind of a head scratcher. But for that first generation of Israelite Jews, this is what they were looking for, what they were holding on to, and what they saw as a pattern throughout this story. And so first to start, I kind of have to sum up the start of this chapter. You can start flipping in your Bibles to Genesis 18. I so wish I had enough time to read the entire um, first chunk of text with you. It's such like a cool story, um, but we just don't have time. But best I can, here's my summary of what happens. Abraham is chilling by his tent at the door of his tent. Three strangers walk up, doesn't know him, but jumps up, super hospitable. He's like, please, sirs, before you go on your way, let, let me host you. Let me feed you. They're like, sure, absolutely, sounds good. Runs to his wife, Sarah. Hey, help me prepare an awesome meal. They make this gigantic feast. It says that they had beef, dairy, and curds, so think Culver's, but better. 
<laughs> if that's possible. Just kidding. It, it is. Not that, I love Culver's. That joke was confusing. They had an awesome fe- feast, okay? And then, and then God reveals in this dialogue, oh, it's, it, it's God, actually, and two angels that you're hosting. He says, this time next year, Sarah will have a kid, Isaac. And it's if he, as, as if God is reminding both Abraham and Sarah and us, the reader, God is saying, I'm still going to do the thing. I'm going to bring my blessing. I'm going to bring my blessing through the seed of Adam and Eve and through the seed of Abraham and Sarah, but I will do it. And there's even this interaction where <laughs> Sarah laughs and God's like, why'd you laugh? And Sarah's like, I didn't laugh. And he's like, you laughed. It's a very <laughs> weird, it's cool. But it's as if God is like gently rebuking, like every time you don't believe me and you don't live by my way, things go poorly. I'm going to do the thing. I'm going to bring the blessing through your seed. And that brings us to verse 16. Look with me at your Bibles. My translation probably a little bit different than yours, but read along with me still. It says this. The men got up from there and looked out over Sodom. And Abraham was walking with them to see them off. Then the Lord said, Should I hide what, I'm, what I am about to do from Abraham? Abraham is to become a great and powerful nation. And all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. This is how the Lord will fulfill to Abraham what he promised him. And Doxa, this is nuts. Like this might not feel nuts to us, but we just got a super cool detail in the story where God fleshes out in more detail, paints a picture for us. I've already chosen Abraham, but now what will it look like for me to work with Abraham? What will it look like for Abraham to walk with me by the way of the Lord? Justice and righteousness. And I think for us, whether you grew up in the church or maybe especially if you grew up in the church, these can just feel like, you know, any Bible word. Like the author of Genesis could have thrown anything in there. Like, and he will command his household by the way of faith and prayer, you know. And, and he will do it by live, laugh, love, whatever. But it, it's not that. It's not just any random words. God and the author of Genesis very intentionally chooses these words, justice and righteousness. And I think that that meaning can kind of glaze over us. So we have to do a little mini word study here. Justice and righteousness. What does that mean in the Bible? Well, first, justice, the Hebrew word, is mishpat. It means to give somebody their due. So that can mean retributive justice, as in if you steal from someone, you should have to pay the consequences for that. But most of the time, when it's used in the Bible, it's used to talk about restorative justice, which is helping victims and those who have less, pouring yourself out for others. That's what God says would be just. And then this other word, righteousness, it's the Hebrew word tzedakah, which means right relationship with others. Super relational. It's a bummer because I think for us, the only times that we hear that, that term righteous, usually outside of church, is like with surfers and when somebody is self-righteous, right? And so you have these people that are just super consumed with themselves. 
And then the other one, self-righteous people, I'm just kidding. I had like surfers. Sorry, Danny. I thought, this is a dumb joke. But so we think like righteous, like I'm just obsessed with myself. I'm so holy. That is not how the Bible talks about it. Primarily, most important way that God and the Bible talks about righteousness is being made right with God. But then numerically, the, the most often, it's used to describe a right relationship with other people. And these words are used hundreds of times throughout the Bible, most of the time talking about caring for people in need. And every time that they're used, they have huge significance. But over three dozen times, these words are used together, tied together, to mean something even more potent than if they were just on their own. I'm going to read you a quote from a pastor named Tim Keller. He's a pastor out in New York City. He says in his book, Generous Justice, this, rectifying justice is mishpat. It means punishing wrongdoers and caring for the victims of unjust treatment. Primary justice, or tzedakah, is behavior that, if it was prevalent in the world, would render rectifying justice unnecessary because everyone would be living in right relationship to everyone else. When these two words, zedekah and mishpat, are tied together, as they are over three dozen times, the English expression that best conveys the meaning is social justice. And before even a minute passes in the sermon, I just want to acknowledge, I know that that term can be supercharged in our world today, but let's hear what he's saying and not what he's not. God's vision for doing justice in the world is inherently social. So here are some examples to look at in its context. Um, these verses will come up on the screen. This first one, Jeremiah 22, 3. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. So you see here in this verse what is often referred to as scholars as the quartet of the vulnerable. Four types of people that keep getting brought up over and over and over throughout the Bible for some reason. The orphan, the widow, the foreigner, and the poor. And the reason that God is so concerned with this, these people is because in that day and age, these people, if you were an orphan, if you were a widow, if you're a foreigner, or you just did not have financial or social means, that meant that it would have been harder to get ahead in life. And so God says to his people, look out for those people. And not just don't mistreat them, but give to them, help them, support them. Proverbs 31, 8 and 9 says this, Speak up for those who have no voice, for the justice of all who are dispossessed. Speak up, judge righteously, and defend the cause of the oppressed and needy. And so we see that doing justice for God is more than just generosity, but it's also advocacy. God says there are people in your town that will not have the same voice and influence that you do. And so you that do have the voice and influence, I want you to speak on their behalf. Look out for them. And then I love this example from Job chapter 29. Job, most righteous person on the planet in his day. This is how he describes what his righteousness looked like for him. It says, For I rescued the poor who cried out for help, and the fatherless child who had no one to support him. The dying blessed me, and I made the widow's heart rejoice. I clothed myself in righteousness, and it enveloped me. 
My just decisions were like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I examined the case of the stranger. I shattered the fangs of the unjust and snatched the prey from his teeth. So we see here, Job, most righteous person on the planet, he's not only confronting the people and systems that prey on vulnerable people, and he's not only giving to vulnerable people, but I love this. He becomes the, the exact spot of need that these people have. And so he sees like the orphan who has no dad, and he's like, I'll be like a dad to you. And to the widow, I'll be like a husband to you. Those uh, means of getting ahead in life, I will just fill in that gap for you. And so, Doxa, like, for example, when me and my wife are just trying to get her new license plates, which is, for some reason, taking a really long time right now, and we are putting together our two college-educated minds, we just cannot figure out, what is with all of this paperwork? Why is this so hard to do? We just need license plates. And when I run into that, when I'm getting license plates, when I'm signing up for insurance, whatever, I just call my dad. I call my mom. And Doc said, there are people in this city and there are people in this room that do not have that. And God says, that's your job. Justice and righteousness. All of this would have been on the first reader's minds This phrase would have been super loaded with meaning as they poured over the scriptures over and over. They would have read that and thought, oh, all the Levitical laws about helping the poor and the needy, justice and righteousness. And now that Abraham has been chosen by sheer grace, this is what it would look like for Abraham to walk with God. This is the way of the Lord to do justice and righteousness, pouring himself out for the poor and needy. So I want to ask a couple questions. First, you in the room, If you are vulnerable, say you've been hit by poverty or you're not part of the majority culture or you just, you know, are are down on your luck, do you know that this is God's heart for you? And do you know that this is God's hope for the church for you? And then for all of us in the room that call ourselves followers of Christ, do you know that this is not just for Abraham, but for you? I want to make this super clear for us. A life poured out in deeds of service to the poor and and, and the vulnerable is the inevitable sign of true saving faith. I'll say that again. A life poured out in deeds of service to the poor is the inevitable sign of any real, true, justifying gospel faith. Right? So it's like, so, so is God saying like, well, I, I had chosen you, but actually now you have to do this thing to earn my love. No, that, it's like right in the text, right? God says, I chose him. He didn't do anything. But now that I've chosen him, this is what it will look like. And it's like this picture of fruit on a tree, right? This is how it's described in the New Testament, where if you're looking at a couple apple trees, one of them has apples, one of them does not have apples, Right? And you're like, that, that one's the alive tree. And then little, little Billy uh, comes up, bless his heart, and he's like, oh, so the apples are what make it alive. That's, what, that's like its, its source of life. You'd be like, no, Billy, I'm sorry. I'm, I don't mean to talk down to you, but no, that's, that's not how it works. The apple just indicates to me that that is the alive tree, right? And that is how the Old Testament and the New Testament describes pouring ourselves out for the poor. 
That's why James says, hey, you say that you're saved by faith, awesome. But if you don't pour yourself out for the poor, I don't know if you were saved by faith. So God's grace makes you just. And here, God invites us to join him in doing justice and righteousness for the poor. Justice and righteousness. So like, that's awesome. And I read that and and I'm stoked because I'm like, that's like, kind of a a huge part of my job is just pouring over the Bible to see like what does God's heart for justice look like? How do we translate that to Madison today? But I have to admit, reading this passage, I was a little puzzled. Like why, of all of the stories of Genesis, why this one? Why, why, Why here does God first drop that phrase? And this is the first time in the whole Bible that that phrase is used. But look with me in verse 20. It says, Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense, and their sin is extremely serious. I will go down to see if what they have done justifies the cry that has come up to me. If not, I'll find out. So it's if God is saying here, justice, righteousness, And on that note, turns to Sodom and Gomorrah. And so why is that? What's God's beef with Sodom and and, and Gomorrah? Well, remember, Ezekiel 16, they had plenty, but they did not give to the poor. And we're clued in here in the text itself. Notice that word, outcry, cries. The author of Genesis is intentionally using the exact same language that God uses when he says to Cain, after he's murdered his brother Abel, first murder in history. Abel, what have you done? Your brother's innocent blood is crying out to me. It's the same language that you see in Exodus 2, when oppressed slaves cry out to God. And it's the same language in Exodus 22 and Deuteronomy 15, when God says, hey, now that I've saved you, if you neglect the poor, the orphan, the widow, the immigrant, I will hear their cries It's the same language that James uses in chapter 5 when he says to rich Christians, hey, the unpaid workers that you're exploiting, their cries have risen to God and they've reached his ears. When evil, injustice, and oppression occur, cries go up to God and he hears them. And I don't want us to miss this. I don't want us to gloss over this because... Right after the flood, when God flooded the whole earth, he told Noah what? Never going to do that again. But it begs the question, when evil comes around, will God do nothing? And I think that these cries might have sounded something like Psalm 13, which says, How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I store up anxious concerns within me, agony in my mind every day? How long will my enemy dominate me? Consider me and answer, Lord my God. Restore brightness to my eyes. Otherwise, I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I've triumphed over him and my foes will rejoice because I am shaken. See, Doxa, I don't want us to skim past this because I have listened 
in my life to the weeping of grown men described to me how they were mistreated for the color of their skin. And when they tried to talk to a friend about it, they were met with a debate. And I've listened to grown women weep as they described to me their sexual assault and how their abuser walks free and how now they feel the need to convince people that it wasn't their fault. And I've listened to grown men weep as they described to me the abusive things that happened to them and are said to them while they're in prison. And now they're trying so hard to just walk a straight line, stay out of trouble, but they ask me, Sam, why won't my boss just pay me? And Doc said, that messes me up. And if I, a sinner, can get that, how much more do you think it bothers God to see us abuse each other? And so to you in the room, if you've been abused, if you've been exploited, if you've been oppressed, and you are asking the question, God, do you even care? Please hear me say, yes, God cares so much. And he will not just stand idly by. He will do something about it. So these cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, they've neglected and oppressed the poor. So God, in his kindness, is going to do something about it, but it'll be fair. He's going to go check it out for himself before he makes the final call. The city will be faced with sort of a test. When two poor strangers arrive, will they give to them? Will they do justice and righteousness? Then God will make the call and God will do justice and righteousness for the poor. Let's keep reading. Verse 22. The men turned from there and went toward Sodom. Well, Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Abraham stepped forward and said, Will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in this city? Will you really sweep it away instead of sparing the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people who are in it? You could not possibly do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike? You could not possibly do that. Won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? So what is happening here? This is kind of remarkable. Very bold of Abraham, no? See, Abraham knows two things. He knows that God will be just in bringing his wrath, but he also knows that God is exceedingly merciful. And Abraham's distressed because he knows that probably wrath is coming for Sodom, right? God said, I'm going to check it out, but we know from chapter 13 that where Lot settled, Sodom was exceedingly wicked. It had a reputation. But Abraham's distressed because he knows my nephew Lot is there. That's where he lives. And he, he's not the best guy, but I know that he's not as wicked as the people in Sodom. And so he's wrestling with this. What, what, is God just going to completely pour out his wrath? And God's wrath, put simply, is his allowing our destructive sin to run its course 
and in special instances, speeding up the process through, through divine intervention, right? So in, in Isaiah 9, when Isaiah describes how the oppressive society starts to unravel kind of naturally, that's because God created it to be in a certain way, a certain order, and we go against that and it just falls apart. But then we also see in specific instances like the flood narrative, where people have become so evil and evil is so rampant and they are so determined, God, we don't want your order, we want chaos. And God says, okay, and he allows the chaotic floodwaters that he separated in Genesis 1 to cave in and flood the earth. And so Abraham knows that God rightfully is going to pour out his wrath, but he also knows that God's exceedingly merciful, so he appeals to God based on his own character. And this is super cool. Right? Notice the language that Abraham intentionally uses. He says, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Shall not the judge do what is just? Far be it from you. That's not your way. It's the exact same thing that Moses does when when he intercedes for Israel before God. He appeals to his name, his reputation, and he quotes back to God things that God himself said to him. Aren't you slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression? So Abraham is wrestling with this question. God, I know that you have to be just, but how also will you be merciful? So let's see how it plays out. Verse 26. The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I'll spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham answered, since I have ventured to speak to my Lord, even though I am dust in ashes, suppose the 50 righteous lack five. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? He replied, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Then he spoke to him again. Suppose 40 are found there. He answered, I will not do it on account of 40. Then he said, let my Lord not be angry and I will speak further. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Then he answered, since I have ventured to speak to my Lord, suppose 20 are found there. He replied, I will not destroy it on account of 20. Then he said, let my Lord not be angry and I will speak one more time. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, I will not destroy it on account of 10. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he departed and Abraham returned to his place. This is nuts. Like, I think for us, you know, glancing at this, we might think like, oh, this is like, he's bargaining. He's like bartering with God, like 50. Do we have 50, you know? But if we look at it, it's truly not what's happening, Right? Because notice Abraham's language, super ornate, super flowery. God, don't be mad. I just, let me ask one more time. But then notice the contrast with God's voice. I love how the pastor John Onwachekwa puts it. He says, we see here Abraham is walking on eggshells asking God to be merciful. And God is responding quick. And as we look through this and see God, what we see is, no, mercy is God's native tongue. God loves to be merciful. It's not a thing Abraham has to beg God to do. So the conclusion here is this. The dialogue ends. We see, yes, God will be merciful. So let's read on. Chapter 19, verse 1. The two angels entered Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in Sodom's gateway. When Lot saw them, he got up to meet them. He bowed with his face to the ground and said, My lords, turn aside to your servant's house. Wash your feet. Spend the night. Then you can get up early and go on your way. No, they said, we we would rather spend the night in the square. But he urged them so strongly that they followed him. 
and went into his house. He prepared a feast and baked unleavened bread for them, and they ate. So, how will the city respond to this test? So far, it's looking pretty good. This guy, Lot, takes him in. He's super hospitable. So, hey, maybe we found at least one righteous person that, of, of those people that Abraham was talking about. The story turns south fast. Verse 4. Before they went to bed, the men of the city of Sodom, both young and old, the whole population surrounded the house. They called out to Lot and said, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Send them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went out to them at the entrance and shut the door behind him. He said, don't do this evil, my brothers. Look, I've got two daughters who haven't been intimate with a man. I'll bring them out to you and you can do whatever you want with them. However, don't do this to these men because they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of the way, they said, adding, this one came here as an alien, but he's acting like a judge. Now we'll do more harm to you than to them. They put pressure on Lot and came up to break down the door. But the angels reached out, brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the entrance of the house, both young and old, with blindness, so that they were unable to find the entrance. So we see now here a tragic, graphic image of how the people of Sodom will, will respond. Their accusation? Neglect of the poor. So two foreigners come into town, and how do they respond? Not only will they not give to the poor, but they will violently take instead. Their proud wickedness is displayed in violent rape. It's the only time I'm going to use that word because I know it's not a word that we should use lightly. It's a violent word, and I know it can be super triggering to hear it. So for the remainder of the sermon, I'll just refer to it as sexual assault, but make no mistake, that is what's happening. And I know that you can be feeling some discomfort, like did Lot just suggest that his daughters be sexually assaulted instead? And the answer tragically is yes. And I want to be, be super clear, if that feels disgusting, it should. It's supposed to. And remember, Genesis often does not explicitly lay out for us, hey, this person did this and that was good, and this person did this and that was bad. But it will let us see how the situation plays out, what the consequences are. And at the end of chapter 19, in almost like a cosmic tragic irony, we'll see that though Lot suggested that they sexually assault his daughters and take their virginity, his daughters will sexually assault Lot and Lot will take their virginity. It's awful. And to this point, before anything can happen, that the angels intercede, I've seen enough, jury's out. Let's keep reading. And the angel said to Lot, Do you have anybody else here, a son-in-law, your sons and daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of this place. We're about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people is so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were going to marry his daughters. Get up, he said. Get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. Notice, Doxa, Lot is trying so hard to show his sons-in-law mercy. And at daybreak, the angels urged Lot on, get up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated because of the Lord's compassion for him. 
The men grabbed his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters. They brought him out and left him outside the city. Notice, Doc, that the angels are trying so hard to show Lot and his family mercy. Verse 17, as soon as the angels got them outside, one of them said, run for your lives. Don't look back. Don't stop anywhere on the plain. Run to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, no, my lords, please. Your servant has indeed found favor with you and you have shown me great kindness by saving my life, but I can't run to the mountains. The disaster will overtake me and I will die. Look, this town is close enough for me to flee to. It's a small place. Please let me run to it. It's only a small place, isn't it? So that I can survive. And he said to them, all right, I'll grant your request about this matter too and will not demolish the town you mentioned, but hurry up, run to it, for I cannot do anything until you get there. Notice, Doxa, the angels are so willing to show Lot mercy. They had four things to do. Run for your lives. Don't look back. Don't stop anywhere. Make it to the mountains. Lot's like, I think I, think I can do two of the four. Is that okay? They're like, yes, two's fine. Just go. Verse 23. The sun had risen over the land when Lot reached Zor. Then out of the sky, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, burning sulfur from the Lord. He demolished these cities, the entire plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and whatever grew on the ground. Lot's wife looked back and became a pillar of salt. Early in the morning, Abraham went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and all the land of the plain. He saw that smoke was going up from the land like the smoke of a furnace. So it was when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and brought Lot out of the middle of the upheaval when he demolished the cities where Lot had lived. The story ends where God was so willing to be merciful. There was just 10 people in the city that were righteous. He would have spared the whole city. There weren't even 10, and yet, even though Abraham didn't even ask for this, God was willing to extend mercy to six people and give them a way out. But even still, in the end, only three would actually take him up on it. And the story ends on a super down note. Like I said, after this, we get this troubling account of how Lot's daughters get their father drunk and sexually assault him two nights in a row. And maybe the most sad thing is it's not even like out of revenge. It's just because it's what they thought was best in their eyes to secure a blessing for themselves. And it's as if the narrative is showing us that though God has done justice for the poor, the sin problem still very much remains. And this should be unsettling to us, Doxa. As we see the smoke rising from the valley, we should be shaken because we know it's only by God's grace that we're not there in that wreckage. Because we are unjust, Doxa. We are wicked. And I don't even mean just like in the abstract. I mean, all of us constantly and strategically even neglect the poor and the vulnerable. And I'm tempted to say something here really vague to make it like feel nicer. Like we've all just got a little bit of unjustness in us. But I know that the Bible would be more blunt than that. And I know that for many of us, if we were to be asked, what's the worst thing about Madison? We would all have some pet list of things that we think are the worst. And they would all conveniently be things that I don't actually struggle with. They're far from me. But all of us, consistently, regularly neglect to help the needs of others and not even just including the poor, but especially the poor. 
Because it would just be too hard or too messy or too complicated to get involved in other people's problems when all those complexities are exactly what God wants us interwoven in each other's lives to begin with. And even for those of us that feel like we get this biblical concept, the Bible doesn't say like justice. It doesn't say think about justice. It says do justice. And so I'm faced with this problem, Doxa. I am unjust. I deserve God's wrath. What am I supposed to do? But praise be to God, Doxa. This is not the last mountain encounter we see in the Bible. Praise God, Doxa, because this design pattern that we see of someone going up a mountain, it happens over and over, and the stakes keep getting ratcheted higher and higher, where we see Abraham ascend a mountain and talk to God about his oncoming wrath and wrestle with the question, God, I know that you have to be just, but how also will you be merciful? And we see Moses ascend a mountain and talk to God about his oncoming wrath and say, God, I know that you have to be just, but how also will you be merciful? And then we see Jonah riff on this and ascend a mountain and talk to God about his relenting wrath, where he says, I knew that you would do this. I wanted you to be just, but you chose to be merciful. And then we see Jesus in the gospels, in his transfiguration, ascend a mountain meet two other men and God, discussing God's oncoming wrath. And if we're following the story, we're expecting this question, God, I know you have to be just, but how also will you be merciful? And what does Jesus ask? Nothing, because he knows. He knows exactly how God is gonna be both just and merciful. Because on the cross, Jesus will die and God's full wrath will be poured out on the only true, just, righteous person to ever live so that we could be shown mercy. And it's immediately after this interaction that Jesus goes back down the mountain with James, John, and Peter and a city refuses to show them hospitality. And James and John say, Jesus, say the word and we'll call down fire and brimstone on this city. And Jesus says, you don't get it. I have come to save. Docs of the Bible makes it clear that we are all spiritually poor and needy. We are all spiritually bankrupt. We're hopeless. And if you don't see yourself as needy, you will never find Jesus and the gospel will never be good news. And if you don't get the gospel, you won't pour yourself out for the needy. So to wrap up, Doxa, I, I can't guilt you <laughs> into caring for the poor and vulnerable, so I'm not gonna try. But guess what? The Bible does not either. Because every single time that God says to do justice and righteousness for the poor, he says to do it in light of what he first did for you. Do you see, Doxa, we were poor and needy and Jesus did justice and righteousness for us. So I'm gonna invite the band to come back up here and I'm gonna close with this. To those of you in the room who've not trusted in Jesus, hear the gospel and take the free gift of mercy and grace. And to those of you who have 
Again, hear the gospel. See that Jesus did justice and righteousness for you. And to the degree that you let that hit you, you will go do justice and righteousness for the poor. Let's pray. God, you are good. And your word can be confusing. We can come across texts that are like kind of a head scratcher, but I thank you, God, that you lay out over and over and over who you are. And even as Abraham prays to you, he just quotes back to you who you are. And so, God, we confess you are just, you are righteous. And we confess, Jesus, that we are not just and righteous. We're wicked. And we need your mercy. And so, Jesus, I pray that the the gospel would hit us in a new, fresh way today. I pray, God, for people that are far from you, that they would get, like, they can't earn their way to you. Not even by by helping the poor and vulnerable, that won't get them, like, street cred with you, God. But, But, God, if we see what you did for us, we can accept that gift of mercy by faith. And then through that, God, in light of what you've done, you could make us just and righteous. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray these things. Amen.